Make sure you pull out your sermon notes from the bulletin so you can follow along because we have finally got to the chapter that this entire series is based on. We get to the chapter that for the last five weeks we've been preaching a series is titled Shipwrecked. We're finally at the shipwreck in Acts 27. And here's what we're going to see today as we jump into Acts 27. There are spiritual life lessons in the shipwreck of Paul in Acts 27 that apply to all Christians today. Meaning this, we're going to see how they survived the shipwreck and we're going to say, wow, they did this to survive. And if we do the simil- a, a similar thing in our Christian life, we can survive the spiritual storm we're going through. And, and I'm going to go ahead and give you my outline right now. There's two things we're going to learn. We're going to learn that we survive shipwrecks by letting go. We let go of certain things that are dragging us under. We let go of certain things that are slowing us down. We let go of certain things that are misdirecting us. And we can survive a shipwreck by letting go. And then we can survive a shipwreck, number two, by holding on. By holding on to the only thing that is really worth holding on to at the end of the day, when all hope is lost, we say, all right, God, either, either you take it or it's not going to get done. We learn today about letting go and about holding on from Acts chapter 27. If you remember, the Apostle Paul has just been transported from prison in Jerusalem to prison in Caesarea, where he can get on a boat in the Mediterranean sailing up to Rome. He has taken the few initial stages of that journey. Now's the big one. We step into Acts 27, 13. We're going to read all the way through verse 44. Here is Paul's major shipwreck with lots of detail. It says, when a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity, so they weighed anchor, which means they lifted the anchors and they sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called a nor'easter swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and we were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Cotta, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure, so the men hoisted it aboard. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together because they were afraid they would run aground on the sandbars of the Sirtis. They lowered the sea anchor, and they let the ship be driven along. Verse 18, we took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After they'd gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea when about midnight the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found that it was 90 feet deep. Fearing we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and they prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you can't be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said... You've been in constant suspense. You've gone without food. You haven't had anything to eat. Now I urge you, take some food. You're going to need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. 
After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged, and they ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could, cutting loose the anchors. They left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The boat struck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were going to get there on planks or on other pieces of ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. A shipwreck that was survived. The shipwreck given to us in so much detail, as a matter of fact, that Bob Cornuke, who was with us about a month ago as, in, as, a, as a former crime scene investigator, now kind of a Bible investigator, archaeologist, a student of the Bible, said, you, I, I think I can take all these details and I can find these four anchors. Because Malta is a real island that's still in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And there can only be so many places on Malta where the floor of the ocean slopes from 120 feet to 90 feet right before running into a sandbar that has a bay on a sandy beach. So he went and he Search and he found out in the 1960s they had poured up four Roman anchors splayed across an area of a, a precisely the size of an Alexandrian grain ship. This is one of the most accurate historical proven stories of the Bible. What we read happened, I believe, with the people on board in the place that it said it was, and, and there's real history that you can go see and touch in a museum on Malta where the anchors of this ship were dropped and left exactly where the Bible said they were. It's a phenomenal chapter. But as we dig into this chapter and we read about how they survived the storm and how they survived the shipwreck, we see some unbelievable lessons of how you and I can survive the storms of our life. And I want to talk to you about these two, letting go and holding on, because I believe this text holds some unbelievable truth for those of us today who may be getting ready to head into a storm, for those who have just come out of a storm, or maybe for those who are right in the middle of the storm and we're like these sailors. It's been days since we've seen any light at the end of our tunnel. Maybe it's been weeks since we've seen any light at the end of our tunnel and we don't even know where we are on the map of life. For those of us in those positions, some great truth today. Let's talk about letting go. Look at verses 18 through 21. Because we learn some valuable truth about letting go of things when we face storms in our life. Paul says we, or Luke, the author of Acts 27, says we took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After they'd gone on a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourself this damage and this loss. We know the only way they were going to survive this shipwreck was by letting go. Because they were in a situation where the, the events of their life, the season of, the, of their life that they were in, it said had nearly battered them to death. And some of you sit in this room today in that situation. Your marriage recently has nearly battered you to death. Your job or your finance situation recently has nearly battered you to death. Your children and what's going on in their lives right now, relationally, academically, educationally, with their health, has nearly battered you to death. Maybe your own physical health or the health of someone near you who's in and out of the hospital or, or something that's breaking down has just battered you to death. Maybe a relationship that has fallen apart in your life has battered you to death. And you sit in here today 
And you say, Christian, man, I don't know if I can stay afloat because I have been beaten to death by this storm in my life. Paul and 275 people were on a boat and they had been beaten to death by the storm and the only hope of surviving it was to lighten the ship. And sometimes in our spiritual life, we have to learn to lighten our ship spiritually if we hope to keep our heads above the water. You say, Christian, how do we do that? There's three unbelievable areas that, I mean, just fall in in terms of practical advice right into our lap in Acts chapter 27 about things to let go of. In these four verses, we see three areas to let go of spiritually if we feel like we can't keep our head above water. What are they? Number one, things that weigh you down spiritually you have to let go of. There are things in your life that weigh you down spiritually and you have to let go of them. The first thing they did is they couldn't keep the ship above water was lighten it so that it wouldn't sink so much. And some of you have things in your life that you need to throw overboard. In Acts 27, 18, it says they began to throw the cargo overboard. So there's things in your life that are weighing you down. Obviously, you've got to learn to see the sinful things that weigh you down spiritually. But you also have to learn to see the distracting things that weigh you down spiritually because some of you in here aren't going to bob above water again until you lighten your ship spiritually a little bit. Now, the sinful things are easy to see. It's kind of Christianity 101. For those of us who have grown up in church, we're actually tired of hearing about this list, but we know this list. How do we lighten our ship spiritually? When we become a Christian, we kind of we drop the bad habits. We let go of bad habits. I'm a Christian now. I shouldn't do those things. We drop the bad attitudes. I'm a Christian now. I shouldn't react that way. I shouldn't respond that way. I got to learn to not be so angry. I got to learn to not gossip. So I'm a Christian, so I should act different. The activities that we're involved in, I used to do a lot of this, but now that I'm a Christian, I probably shouldn't do that so much anymore. Some of the people we used to be with, you know, I used to be best friends with this group, but you know, they, now that I'm a Christian, you know, they're kind of going one way and I'm going a different way. The places that I go to Friday and Saturday, the hot spots have to change when you're a Christian versus maybe when you're not a Christian. So the sinful things, they're easy to see what needs to be let go of. Because we've been told that since like our youth ministry days, right? Like, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Can't hang out with them. We have that list of, okay, I'm a Christian. I got to let go of these things. The sinful things are easy to see. But what about the distracting things? This is what I call second level Christianity. These are the things in your life that are not sinful, but they're keeping you from really holding on tightly to Jesus. In my life, one of the biggest distracting things I had to overcome to connect with Jesus the way Jesus wanted me to was sleep. Be real honest with you. I could never get up to do my devotions, to read my Bible, to pray. I could never stay up to read my Bible and pray. And one of the first things that I had to get over spiritually to kind of hang on to Jesus a little tighter is I had, I had to learn to deal with a little less sleep or to sleep differently because my sleep was keeping me from connecting with Jesus. Maybe it's hobbies. Maybe you've got some hobbies in your life that aren't particularly sinful things. But this hobby does not give you time to engage with Jesus on a daily basis. This hobby does not give you time to engage with Jesus on a monthly basis. This hobby does not give you any extra money to ever give at church. This hobby does not give you Sundays to go to church. This hobby doesn't give you time to get in a small group. This hobby doesn't allow you to ever really serve in church. It's a distraction that keeps you from engaging with Jesus fully. Maybe it's a friendship. You know, I have Christian friends that weigh me down spiritually, and so do you. Because when you get with them, the, the attitudes that you're able to have, the conversations you're able to have, you can get with Christ, you can be in Christian friendships that when you spend two or three hours with these people, you leave and you're just a little lower spiritually than you were when you went into it. You gotta be smart enough to know, you know, I've got these Christian friendships, but they're, you know, when we, when we get together, they're kind of negative spiritually. Maybe it's sports. Probably the greatest distraction of my life from 13 to 21 was sports. 
Sports competed more with Jesus in my life than anything else as a young athlete. From middle school through college, there were many times where I had to choose sports or Jesus. They were always in conflict with each other. Sports are not bad, but sports taking priority and place over Jesus, they distract you and they weigh you down spiritually. Now that I'm not 21 anymore, it's my kids' sports that distract me spiritually. And my kids' sports are not sinful But I can tell you, kids' sports in our community will not only weigh you down spiritually, they'll drown you spiritually. They don't care about your spiritual time, most of you. So you've got to learn the things that weigh you down, and you've got to be willing to let go of things that are pulling you down, dragging you down spiritually. But you also have to be willing to let go, number two, of things that appear to hold you up spiritually. Now I'm going to need you to put on your thinking cap for this one because this may be the most powerful point of the message that doesn't yet make sense to you. You've got to be willing to let go of the things that appear to hold you up spiritually. Paul said it this way in Acts 27, 20. We finally gave up hope of being saved. We finally gave up all hope except for Jesus stepping into the picture. You know most Christians place their faith... I've been preaching on this for kind of the last six months. Most most Christians place their faith in Jesus and something. And as as long as Jesus and something are going good, we feel close to Jesus. We love Jesus. We feel blessed by Jesus. But as long as Jesus and something are working in tandem, everything is good. But when that something goes away... I've heard it said this way, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus anything equals blessing. Like, that's just a bonus... But Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But most of us, Jesus plus nothing equals a real lack of hope. And Paul said, you've got to be willing to let go of that something and rely just on Jesus. Because when your spiritual security is in anything besides Jesus, your faith is going to be vulnerable. Because when that goes away, you have to decide whether Jesus is real whether Jesus is worth following, whether Jesus is worth serving, whether Jesus is worth sacrificing for us. You say, well, Christian, give give me an example. What are those things that appear to hold me up spiritually that maybe I'm not aware of? Before I started this church, I read this book that flipped me out. It's called Empty Promises by Pete Wilson. He's a pastor of a church in Nashville. For those of you who care, he's Taylor Swift's pastor um, in Nashville. Now the teenagers are listening. So, you know, at least I I got one good point um, today. And in this book... He talks about things that we partner with Jesus to hold our faith up. But he says those things are empty promises, and when they leave, some of us are left with just Jesus, and sometimes it's not enough. So I'm reading this to think about preaching, not for my own life, and then it hits me. He talks about the empty promise of achievement. Most of us have Jesus and achievement. If I'm following Jesus and achieving all these things, God is good. If I'm following Jesus and achieving these things, God is real. If I'm following these things and achieving these things, God can be trusted. But when the thing goes away, we begin to question our God. He talked about approval. He said, many people live with God and approval. I'll follow Jesus as long as everyone thinks well of me, talks well of me. If everything's going well in my life, if people are approving of me, that's great. But to follow Jesus and have everyone look down on that might not be worth following Jesus. He talked about power. How many people will follow Jesus as long as they have power and control And when they have some kind of control in their life, they're able to follow Jesus as long as they've got a little bit of control. The one that hit me square in the eyes was money. He said a lot of people place their faith in Jesus and money. And as a church planner about five years ago, I'll be very honest with you, I slept well. As a church planner who didn't allow the church to pay me from the offerings of the people for the first three years, but I I raised my support from friends and family members and churches across the country. When I had Jesus in a savings account, I slept well. When I had Jesus and enough money to bail me out, I slept well. And when that 
savings account got to zero, I still had Jesus, but I had no peace. And I had questions of whether or not God was good and whether or not God was honoring my sacrifice and whether or not it was worth it. And I start reading this book and I think, oh my gosh, I had, I had Jesus connected to money in my life. And when the money began to go, what, what appeared to be Jesus, my whole faith life began to sink because it was connected to financial stability. He talks about the false, the false God of religion. How when Jesus and my church family, Jesus and my church friends, Jesus and my small group, Jesus and my youth group, Jesus and my Sunday school group, go good, it's great. But when the church experience goes bad, we connect Jesus too much to a church experience. He talked about beauty and appearance. God is good as long as I look good and feel good and people think I look good and feel good. He talked about dreams and ambition. How many of us connect Jesus to our dreams and ambition? If Jesus gives us everything we want, then God is good. But if our dreams and ambitions fail, then maybe God is not even real. And I remember walking through this and thinking, I've got to learn to let go of the things that appear to hold me up spiritually and let Jesus plus nothing equal everything in my life because that has not been my reality. And, and here's maybe a, a, a good illustration that will help you understand that. One of my favorite cities in the world is Chicago. My mom and dad live about an hour south of Chicago. Um, so I, I've spent way more time in downtown Chicago than I have downtown Kansas City. I know my way around downtown Chicago better than I know my way around downtown Kansas City. And I never take anyone to Chicago, leaders, students in ministry, family members, friends, um, without taking them up to the John Hancock Building Observatory, which is about a thousand feet above street level on the 94th floor of this massive building that towers over kind of the, the southwest shore of Chicago. It's just fascinating. I've been up there dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of times. But they, they recently added a new feature to this building. And, and I've got a picture of it. They built these glass boxes that hang off the side of the building that you can step into. So you can literally step into a glass box that, it, that looks like it's that thick. And you can see th- a thousand feet down. You see miles in every direction. And you feel like you're just standing on air a, a thousand feet up. I can't tell you how afraid I was to go into this box. It took 30 minutes of a high school field trip laughing at me for me to find, and Danielle, like, you know, Danielle's like, I'm in, I'm out. I mean, like, no, you know, like I couldn't, like I would go and I put, like, I couldn't, I couldn't, I was so scared. I, I didn't think I was afraid of heights. I didn't think I had problems with heights, but I, I couldn't walk out there. It shook me to the core to think that there was nothing underneath me and that I was a thousand feet up. To take that picture, I actually did this. I walked in backwards, I didn't look down, and then I stepped right off of it. Two weeks after we took this picture, a group of people were sitting in this, taking a picture, and the floor shattered. The first level of it, it didn't drop them because it was structurally sound, but the the level they were sitting on, the the glass cracked. If that would have been me, like you'd have gone to my funeral. Like I would have died in that minute, it would have been over. You say, what changed? Nothing. Perspective. I, hit, I was still, with or without the glass floor, I was still a thousand feet up. With or without the glass floor, I was exposed to, you know, being really high up. But when my mind began to realize there's not anything separating me from a thousand feet of space, it really freaked me out. And I, I could not make that step. And some of us, when Jesus and whatever, whatever appears to hold us up spiritually are going well, Life's good. 
But when that veil is removed and it's just Jesus and we're just living on faith in Jesus, not in faith in what Jesus is doing for us right now, not faith in the blessing that's coming tomorrow, but just Jesus and his death on the cross and his forgiveness of our sins and his promise of a future life, when it's just Jesus and nothing else and we can't see anything else protecting us, it's just Jesus, some of us say, oh, I, I, I don't know that I can take that step of faith. I don't know that I want to take that step of faith. So Paul says we have to be willing to let go of the things that appear to hold us up spiritually. Because our faith is vulnerable as long as our faith is wrapped in something that makes us feel a little more comfortable. So at some point, we've got to give up all hope but the hope of the supernatural. And then you just pray God shows up. You say, well, I don't want to be there. I don't want to be there either. But once you can get comfortable and stand there for a minute, you go to a new level in your faith, and Jesus plus anything from that point forward just feels like, like blessing, not entitlement. Moses came to this point on a mountain. He had no hope but the hope of the supernatural. David came to this point in a forest with the king of Israel chasing him. Elijah came to this point in a cave with the king of Israel chasing him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came to this place in a fiery furnace with the king of Babylon trying to kill him. Daniel came to this place in a lion's den with the king of Persia trying to kill him. Esther came to this place in a palace with her husband maybe deciding whether to take her and her family's life. Nehemiah came to this place walking through a city that had been destroyed. Jesus came to this place in the wilderness. Paul came to this place in a shipwreck where is god going to have to move us to where we give up all hope of anything but jesus and say all right jesus it doesn't appear as if anything else is going to work out i've given it my best ideas i've given it my best investments i've put all the time in it that i can i've memorized all the verses that i can now jesus i am giving up all hope but you stepping in and intervening because that's all i know you see you got to let go of the things that appear to hold you up spiritually if you're ever going to hold just to Jesus. And then number three, you have to learn to let go of your past damages and your loss. You have to let go of your past damages and loss. In Acts 27, 21, Paul said, you would have spared yourself this damage and your loss. Listen, so many of us in here have, have gone through damages and loss. So many of us in here have caused damages and loss. And there are some people in here who cannot hold on to Jesus because they cannot let go of their past because of the damages and the loss. And Paul said, listen, we just have to realize this decision really cost us. And there's going to be some damages and there's going to be some loss. Some of you have been really damaged by somebody's poor decisions. And you've suffered loss because of it. It's not that you need to get over that, but you have to get past that. Some of you have caused damages and loss to other people by your poor decisions. And it's not that you just flippantly get over that, but you have to get past that. You see, we have to learn to get past our past because we might be the last one holding on to it. And the thing that might be keeping some of you from finally holding on to Jesus is you say, I would love to hold on to Jesus, but I have... I've been through so much damage and loss, I don't know that I can ever get away from my past and fully trust Jesus. You can, but you've got to move past your past. Some of you say, I would love to hold on to Jesus, but I have caused so much damage. I've hurt so many people. Christian, if you only knew what was in my past, I don't know what's in your past, but guess what? Jesus wasn't, he does and he doesn't care. He's just like, go and hold on to me. Because you can get past your past, but you've got to be willing to let go of the things that weigh you down, of the things that appear to hold you up, of the things that have caused you damage or loss, or things that have resulted in damage or loss because of you. you've got to learn to let go. And then number two, you've got to learn to hold on. 
We've got to learn to let go and we've got to learn to hold on. Look at verses 22 through 26. Paul said, now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you is going to be lost. Only the ship is going to be destroyed. Last night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, don't be afraid, Paul. You must stay in trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it's going to happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we have to run aground on some island. Now get your pen ready because the key verse is verse 25. I need you to see and hear what Paul said, and I have to ask you to ask yourself, do you believe this? Paul said, keep up your courage, men, Acts 27, 25, for I have faith in God that it's going to happen just as he told me. Paul said, I trust who God is and who God says he is. And I trust how God says he's going to work. And this, this is going to be a bad shipwreck. But I trust God. I have faith in God that it's going to be okay. You know, most Christians want to know only two things during their struggles in life. Number one, that God is aware. We just want to know that God sees it, that God cares about it, that it's on his radar. And then we want to know, number two, that he's active, that he's going to do something about it. We want to know when we're struggling, or we want to know when our friends are struggling. We want to know that God's aware and that God's active, that he's going to do something about it. And the Apostle Paul gives us a verse that is part Jesus, part Old Testament, that gives us great encouragement to let us know that Paul believes God is aware and that God is active. Look at verse 34. You need to underline this one too. Paul says, now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. Did you know that the Bible's filled with verses that tell us God cares about the little details of our life? I believe the Apostle Paul kind of plagiarized Jesus here because it was Jesus in Matthew 10.30 that said even the very hairs of your head are numbered. It was the psalmist in Psalm 56.8 that said, You number my wondering, you put my tears in your bottle, are they not all in your book? Do you know that God knows how many tears that you've cried? And he's written down the reason for everyone so that he could send comfort. I want you to think about that. God knows how many tears you have cried, and he's written down the reason for everyone so that he can make sure to comfort you in your heartache. That's crazy. The Bible says God has plans for your life. Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. The Bible says that God knows about your fears, your anxieties, your concerns, your worries. Psalm 94, 19, and the multitude of my anxieties within me. Your comforts delight my soul. The Bible's filled with references of God knowing the details of our life, but maybe none is better than Psalm 139, verses 7 through 12, where David wonders if he can ever run so far that God can't catch him, or if he can ever do so much that God wouldn't want to be near him. And David came to this conclusion in Psalm 139, 7 through 12, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you and the night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. You know that verse is often quoted at funerals because it says, even if I make my bed in the depths, you are there. God, even if I leave this earth and am buried in the earth, God, you are there. And this is a very comforting verse in death, but it has greater comfort for life. Because God says, no matter where you go, no matter how far you run, no matter which direction you run, no matter how much you're moving in the right direction or wrong direction, no matter how high you are, how low you are, how right you are, how wrong you are, listen, you can't get away from me. I'm aware, I'm active, 
and I'm there. I'm present. So this verse gives us great comfort in life that even in the midst of the storm, we can hold on to God because he's always close enough to grasp. That's why this Sunday, two weeks from now, November 15th, is going to be one of the most powerful Sundays in the history of our church. Because we're going to have somebody who's lived the truth of Psalm 139, 7 through 12, come and talk to us. Her name's Jan Harrison. If you've been at our church for a while, you've actually heard her speak. She and her husband now lead a ministry called With with Open Eyes. We go to Kenya when our Kenya team goes with their ministry. But Jan lost her oldest son, her only son, on the mission field several years ago. He died while doing mission work in Kenya. Her husband had to fly over and get the body. And for a year, they had to wrestle with whether or not God was real and if he was real, if he was good. And if he was good, could he be trusted? And if he was good and could be trusted, how did this happen? And and how was her faith going to be shaped by this? And in this process of going through the storm of life, she ended up writing a book called Life After the Storm. God will carry you through. And from a first-person perspective, she's going to tell you what happened in her soul that I, that I can only kind of teach you through Scripture. She's going to say, here's how it worked for us. When the veil came down and the darkness came, we received comfort because we knew even in James's death, God was right there and he was working. You see, in Acts 27, 23, God, Paul, in the midst of this storm, had comfort because he knew he was, God was right there because it, God came to Paul and he said, don't be afraid, Paul, you must stand trial before Caesar. And this is a really critical element of our Christian life and of our Christian story. You see, Paul had hope because he was living in his calling. Paul had hope because he was doing what God had called him to do. God, Paul had hope because he was pursuing Jesus. But here's where we get wrong. I think Christians today try to live for Jesus rather than toward Jesus. Listen to me. You're not supposed to live for Jesus. You're supposed to live toward Jesus. Paul said, I'm not doing this for Jesus. I'm doing this because every day of my life gets me closer to meeting Jesus. This is my next step. This is my next mission. And Paul said, I'm living toward Jesus. And even if I wreck here, it's going to get me closer to Rome, which is where Jesus has told me to go, which is going to get me closer to the end result of my life. And listen, if your destination is Jesus, your journey cannot fail if you're a Christian. If your destination's for Jesus, you might fail every now and then. You might get off course every now and then. But if your destination is towards Jesus, you're going to get there. You're going to meet him. You're going to cross the finish line. You're going to get that high five. You're going to have that conversation. You're going to receive that hug. If we would live toward Jesus rather than trying to live for Jesus, then every day of our life just gets us a step closer to that destination. But sometimes you have to cut away all the lifeboats that are leading away from Jesus. And some of us have those. You say, what are those? Things that weigh you down. Things that appear to hold you up. Your past damages and your losses. you got to get away from those. And sometimes the only way to get away from those is to just have a shipwreck. Where everything is ruined but your faith in Jesus. And you stand there looking around and you realize he actually does hold you up all by himself. And then you start again. In Acts 27, 26, Paul said, listen, we're going to make it through this. Nevertheless, we're going to run aground on somebody. We're going to have to experience a shipwreck because we're headed in the wrong direction. Do you know the shipwrecks in life always give us the chance to rest and reprogram our spiritual GPS so we can get to the right destination? Paul wasn't headed to Malta. He had to wreck there so that he could stop and get a new boat and get to the right place. 
And some of you are not headed in your lives towards Jesus. Your actions this week were not taking you towards Jesus. Your actions this year were not walking you towards Jesus. Your actions last night were, were not taking you towards Jesus. You're headed towards the wrong island. So some of you might have to wreck on that island so you can stop and figure out a boat that will get you to Jesus. A few years ago, Danielle and I were shopping for Christmas. It's one of my favorite things to do. I love Christmas. Um, I don't like receiving Christmas gifts a whole lot, but I love to give them. I love to give gifts. Um, but normally when Danielle and I go shopping, it looks like this. Danielle shops and I sit in the car and read my phone or sleep. That's, that's shopping with Danielle and Christian. So a few years ago, we're at a mall and we're shopping, which means she's inside and I'm sitting in my car reading my phone. And as I'm sitting in my car reading my phone, um, I hear the back door open behind me and this old man in this little hat and glasses with a cane, he gets in the car, he sits down behind me, and he shuts the door, and he's just sitting there with his cane on, <laughs> resting his hands on his cane. I've never seen this guy before in my life. So I kind of look at him, I'm trying to figure out, you know, like, should I hit him? You know, is, he, is he here to hurt me? Is he going to attack me? Should I run? Should I call the cops? And he just looks very peaceful. He's just sitting back there. He's got his hands on top of his cane, sitting through his leg with his little hat up and glasses. So I just look back and say, how you doing? He says, good. And I thought... This is awkward. You know, like, I'm, I'm not sure what's going on now. And I wait about 30 seconds with this guy just sitting in my car before I hear a knock on the window, and his adult daughter opens the door and says, Dad, um, Dad, that's, that's the wrong car. He kind of looks at me, you know, kind of smiles, and I'm like, see you later, you know. And he, he, gets, he gets out, and his, his, his daughter, I guess it was, kind of knocked on my window, and I rolled my window down. She said, I'm so sorry. I said, that's okay. And she said, my dad started getting dementia. Um, in the last couple months, he just, he gets in any black SUV that he sees because he thinks, he thinks that any black SUV will get him where he needs to go. So if he sees one, he just gets in it. There are a lot of people in this room. You, you just keep getting in cars. You keep getting in vehicles. You keep getting in boats that you think are going to get you where you need to be but they end up dropping you off in the same parking lot because they're not Jesus. And you've got to quit just opening doors that you think will give you momentary peace. Opening doors that you think will give you a, a temporary reprieve from the forgiveness you need. Opening doors that you think will give you, you know, a little bit of the stability you need so that things can appear to be good spiritually. You just got to stop just getting in any car that'll get you out of that parking lot. And you've got to hold on to Jesus. You've got to connect to Jesus because he's the only thing that will give you eternal peace. He's the only thing that will give you absolute forgiveness. He's the only one who will give you everlasting life. You've got to quit going into the other vehicles that life provides for temporary trips away from where you are. You've got to hold on to Jesus because he's the only one that will get you where you want to go. You know, a few days ago, Christian finished his football season and he had to turn in his football stuff, and he lost his jersey. He's like, Dad, I can't find my jersey. So we are searching his room high and low for his jersey. It ended up being in his drawer where it was supposed to be. He kind of looked everywhere but there. Um, but as I was looking under Christian's bed, um, I found this. This is Bear. And his name is Bear because he's a bear. Um, and boys, I guess, don't name their stuffed animals. And Bear is very important to our family. Um, when Christian was little... He couldn't exist without Bear. Those of you who, have, who are parents, maybe your kids have something like this, a blanket or an animal or something. 
Danielle and I could not leave and go on a date until Christian had Bear. Because whatever holding on to Bear did, it, it, gave, it gave him peace that everything was going to be okay. Christian, when he was young, would not fall asleep without Bear. I mean, we would stop our world to find Bear. And when Bear entered the scene, everything was okay. Because holding on to Bear for Christian meant that everything was all right. And I saw Bear laying under his bed, and I, I, I kind of felt bad for Woody in Toy Story. You know, I never really thought deeply about that. I was like, oh, poor Woody. So I grabbed him, and I was like, listen, Bear's a part of our family. You're not allowed to throw Bear under the bed. When you're done with Bear, you can give him to me. But I can't tell you how many nights I went to sleep because you had Bear. I can't tell you how many times your mom and I got to go out because you had Bear. This was, for Christian, something that when he was holding on to, everything was all right. Bear under the bed meant that Christian's growing up, moving on. He's got his dog now that he sleeps with, so when Rudy's in his room, everything is okay. But I thought, man, what a picture of Jesus. What a picture of Jesus for those who in faith, when everything goes wrong, as long as they got Jesus, it's all right. As long as they got Jesus, as long as they're holding on to Jesus, I can sleep at night. As long as they're holding on to Jesus, mom and dad, whatever, people can be gone. As long as I'm holding on to Jesus, churches can come and go. As long as I'm holding on to Jesus, it's all right. What a picture of what holding on to the Savior can do in our life and in our soul. Are you holding on to Jesus today?